Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Good day, everybody. Thank you for joining us again. Today we have Rand Dotson, who has previously taught at UK and at Louisiana State University. He taught history. Um, he is currently the editor-in-chief of Louisiana State University Press and the author of Roanoke, Virginia, 1882 to 1912, Magic City of the New South. And today we are going to be discussing the Swope-Goodloe conflict, which ended in tragedy at the post office. Thank you for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thank you for inviting me. All right. So the Swope-Goodloe conflict um, is one of Lexington's infamous feuds that became a tragedy when the two men had a fatal showdown uh, at the post office. But before we actually discuss the showdown itself that, that happened, can you tell us a little bit about the two men and who were they? Sure. Mm-hmm. So they were William Cassius Goodloe, mm-hmm. who was from a very prominent, well-known Lexington family, very aristocratic, wealthy, and... Armstead Swope, who was from Lincoln County in rural, about 50 miles from Lexington. He grew up in the rural countryside. Mm -hmm. Goodloe, his great uncle was Cassius Clay, which is where his middle name comes from. Mm -hmm. He was was called Cash Goodloe. His name is William Cassius Goodloe, but I think his friends called him Cash Mm -hmm. for short. Mm -hmm. So the middle name comes from his famous great uncle, the famous abolitionist and minister to Russia. Goodloe grew up in Lexington. He was a child of privilege. His parents were quite wealthy. They owned several slaves. Mm-hmm. He was privately educated and then graduated from Transylvania. Okay. And immediately afterwards, accompanied his uncle to Russia. His uncle had just been appointed, his great uncle, Cassius Clay, had just been appointed minister to Russia by Abraham Lincoln. Oh, yeah. And so Cassius Goodloe 19 years old, goes off to Russia to be the private secretary. So he was exposed to politics at a very young age. Yeah, he was 19 when he left Lexington and went with his great uncle to Russia to be his private secretary. And he was there about a year and a half. And he returned and enlisted in the Union Army, rose to the rank of captain fairly rapidly and was injured by falling off his horse late in the war, came back to Lexington after the war, he was a lawyer. Okay. He also published a stridently Republican newspaper in Lexington called the Kentucky Statesman, yes. which you guys have in the Kentucky room, which yes. is why I've been there so many times. <laughs> it's not available anywhere else. I mean, maybe yes. UK's library has it, but it's a rare newspaper. A Republican paper at the time is an anomaly because mm-hmm. the state was dominated by the Democratic, Democratic Party. Party yes. um, and the parties are really kind of flipped today yes. um, in terms of ideology. So he was a lawyer, he was the editor of the Kentucky Statesman, and he got into politics as a Republican politician. He was a devout unionist. His parents were unionists, even though they owned slaves. They were opposed to leaving the union. His parents were Republicans. He was a very strong Republican. He ran for office in the early 1870s, and he was actually elected, which is also strange. Republicans didn't didn't do well. well. He was first elected to the legislature, and then he was elected to the Kentucky Senate. And part of the reason was that at the time, African-Americans in Lexington had just received the right to vote through the 15th Amendment, and they voted Republican. Mm -hmm. And he was able to capture those offices 
with their vote. Yes. It, by the mid 1870s, their vote is gone because mm-hmm. Lexington instigated a poll tax yeah. for everybody so they could get around the 15th Amendment and say, it's we're not keeping you from voting based on the fact you're black. We're keeping you from voting based on the fact that you can't pay this $1.50 poll tax, which doesn't sound like much, but it's a, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. The equivalent would probably be $100 today. Yeah. I, I don't know the math. He was a very prominent lawyer. Mm-hmm. He was a Republican politician. He published this strident Republican newspaper. He was elected to office twice. He rose very rapidly in the Kentucky Republican Party, and he mm-hmm. became a, he became a national figure in the Republican Party very quickly. He had this really rapid ascent in Republican politics. He was elected as a delegate to the Republican National Convention in 1876 when Rutherford Hayes was elected, Mm -hmm. and he helped Hayes get the nomination, and as a reward, he was appointed minister to Belgium. He gets patronage from a Republican president, um, which is what he and Swope both really counted on after Mm -hmm. the avenue of elected office was shut off. Yeah. Um, So he went to Belgium for a couple years and then came back. He got married. Um, He had seven children. And his house was, he owned Loudon House. Yeah. Which today is owned by the Lexington Art League. Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks like a castle, the Gothic (laughs) architecture. It's just amazing. So that was his house. That's where he lived, um, which I think says a lot about the kind of fellow he was in terms of of wealth and prestige. Very, very different from Swope. Swope, as I mentioned earlier, grew up in Stanford in Lincoln County. I haven't been to Stanford, but I I know that Lincoln County is fairly rural, and I know that area is very rural. His parents were sort of middle-class farmers. Mm -hmm. He received education through his family. And for reasons that I have yet to been able to figure out, in 1861, when he was 16, he he left and moved to Indianapolis to live with relatives or to attend school. Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to figure that part of the story out. So he was gone during the Civil War, and he came back afterwards and went to UK for a year then he moved to Paris and studied law under a judge in pa- Paris, Kentucky. Paris, Kentucky. Yeah. Is course, yeah. <laughs> People always get confused when I say, yeah, I'm going to Paris this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he studied law under a judge there and became a lawyer in mm-hmm. Paris. And he was a Democrat oh, early okay. in his career. He became the city attorney for Paris. He never served in the military, mm-hmm. but somehow... Either he created a myth about his military service or mm-hmm. someone suggested that he had been in the military and risen to the rank of colonel and he didn't disabuse them of that notion. <laughs> didn't correct so them. He adopted this this name Colonel Swope. Goodlow was a captain in the Union Army and later the governor of Kentucky commissioned him a colonel. Oh. So he's a legitimate colonel. Yeah. I mean, in this period, everybody's called colonel or general or captain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not uh, necessarily by actually serving right. in there. Usually, that, usually they had served, mm-hmm. but Swope didn't. Okay. But this, this, this story about his military service emerged, and he apparently did nothing to dissuade people from believing that he had risen to the rank of colonel okay. in the Union Army during the war, which was a complete falsehood. Okay. He was kicked out of the Democratic Party for supporting the 1875 Civil Rights Act, um, which was unpopular Mm -hmm. with the Democrats. And he became a Republican in Paris, ran for office a couple times and was defeated. 
also was a delegate at that 1876 Republican National Convention and helped Hayes get the nomination. And his reward was he was made collector of internal revenue. Okay. Those are the guys who collected the tax on distilled spirits, oh. which was, of course, for Kentucky, that was a that's a big job. Yeah, very big. He moved to Lexington. That was a patronage position. Rutherford Hayes had to approve it. And it, it's a really plum job. It, mm-hmm. It's sort of a part-time job that pays really well. He could still be a lawyer yeah. and be the IRS collector. And it allows him to hire 30 to 50 folks who manage collecting the taxes so he can dispense patronage as well. So he was pretty powerful. Yeah, his ascent. So I I still don't. I I found a few letters in the Library of Congress where folks are talking about him as a candidate for Mm -hmm. federal jobs. I haven't put together the link of how he is able to go from this small time lawyer in Paris to getting this really prestigious mm-hmm. patronage appointment in, in Lexington. It was the 7th District, which covered a, a big of, chunk yeah. of central Kentucky, but yeah. it was headquartered in Lexington, mm-hmm. which is a really powerful job. So he arrived in Lexington at the same time that Goodlow was leaving to go to Belgium okay. to be minister. And that's how they both ended up in Lexington. And that's a, that's a, little, right, that's a little bit about their background. I would say that Goodloe's rise in the Republican Party is easy to explain and identify, mm-hmm. but Swopes is sort of, you know, he took sort of a side door in. Because mm-hmm. um, he didn't have those same connections that... Right. Didn't have the education, didn't have the family okay. connections, didn't have the wealth. But very rapidly, he rose to be on par with Goodloe in terms of... They both became very powerful Kentucky Republicans yes. in the party mm-hmm. itself. They They were seen as two of the leaders of the Kentucky Republican Party. Okay. So how did their paths cross? When did they meet? So when Goodloe came back from Belgium, mm-hmm. he their paths crossed then. Swope actually apparently asked him for introductions around mm-hmm. town, which is what you did at the time. He, he hoped that Goodloe would take him around and introduce him to powerful people in Lexington. Okay. And Goodloe turned that request down. Oh. So that, I think, is probably is the beginning of their of their disagreement, their feud. What happened to make this friction kind of start to bubble up? Yeah, so that's an early indication that they're not going to get along. I think when Goodloe came back and Swope had assumed this powerful position of collector, which is a patronage position, and he had risen to become a very prominent Republican, Mm -hmm. um, there's a certain degree of jealousy there, I I think. Goodloe, I'm sure, believed that he had earned his spot in the Republican Party because of being a unionist, fighting in the Civil War, publishing this Republican newspaper, doing all this really difficult work for the Republican Party, which was really unpopular at the time. His life would have been much easier if he had stayed out of politics or been a Democrat. I mean, being a Republican was not, in terms of your career, I mean, it just was a very unpopular thing to be in the 1870s and 1880s. Especially in Kentucky. That's right. Here in Kentucky, especially. (laughs) So I think their, their conflict stemmed from, you know, some jealousy on the part of Goodloe Mm -hmm. to find someone who he would consider perhaps, you know, a country bumpkin or whatever, whatever terminology you want to use, being seen as his equal on a political level when he didn't share the same family background or education 
or the work that Goodloe had done for the Republican Party to that point. Yeah, I see how that that could probably contribute to that and right. hatred. Right. Uh, and then at the same time, Swope being turned down, if he asked Goodloe, and it, he apparently did, for introductions and Goodloe turned him down, then that all is, you know, that's an affront to his honor and course, manhood yeah. as well. Yeah. How did the, I guess you can say, political and social environment in Lexington at the time contribute to that conflict? That's a good question. It, um, I mean, one of the main things is that the, the Kentucky in general in the mm-hmm. post-Civil War period, late yeah. 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, was a fairly violent place. Um, like. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there's this culture of violence where you settle disputes through, through violence. Mm-hmm. So it was not uncommon for folks to go around armed with a knife yeah. or, a, or a weapon or a gun, you know, a gun. Calling out duels. Right, <laughs> right. So that contributed this this notion that you can't settle dispute except through violence. There's the whole honor factor. You know, Kentucky is a strange state, but it considers itself Southern. Yes. And it considered itself Southern after the Civil War, even though it never left the Union and yeah. sent far more troops into the Union Army than the Confederate Army. Yeah. After the war, I mean, the old joke or whatever, the old cliched saying is that Kentucky joined the Confederacy after the war was over, yeah. right? And it's it's pretty true. Yeah. So that Goodloe also f- had to have felt betrayed mm-hmm. to some degree because he fought in the war for a good cause. Mm-hmm. You know, he felt like he was on the side of, he was on the right side mm-hmm. during the war, a war that ended slavery. And yet after the war... The Union effort in the in the conflict is pretty much forgotten in Kentucky yeah. and Lexington. All the Confederate monuments are going up. The Confederates are having reunions. Only Confederate veterans who are Democrats are elected to office. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of betrayal there, I think, for him. Um, so he feels like he paid his dues but wasn't right, right. compensated in, in any way, I guess. That's <laughs> right. He, well, he really wasn't. And in yeah. fact, he paid a penalty for being a Republican to some degree. Yeah. Lexington and Kentucky, you know, it just is an environment that's really tough for Republicans mm-hmm. at the time. They're surrounded by Democrats who control every elected office on local and state level to some degree. And the only way to really survive as a Republican is to get patronage from the federal level. Yeah. And so Swope and Goodloe are both going to Washington at various points and and lobbying to be appointed to be recipients of federal patronage. Mm-hmm. And that comes out of that struggle from not having any available elected offices. Swope yeah. was never elected to any political office, and yet he was considered <laughs> a vice presidential candidate, a candidate for governor. Yeah. Um, he didn't receive either of those nominations, but to even be considered and having never won an election. Maybe he did have the connections that nobody really valued, I guess you can say. Yeah, the the what I'm getting, the key for him is that he was this really incredible speaker. Mm-hmm. And folks just couldn't get over how well-spoken he was and how mesmerizing he was. And Goodloe was not necessarily a great speaker. I've seen references to sort of... He, they said he had a nervous condition. So, I don't, you know, you can interpret that however you want. Yeah. But it do, and he was much smaller and, and seemed more feeble. Mm-hmm. Swope was 
described as over six feet tall and 200 pounds, Mm -hmm. probably, uh, you know, had a very loud voice. So he had like a presence that may be good low. That's right. That's right. Another thing to be jealous of. That's right. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that conflict, the day. The D-Day. Yeah. (laughs) So... What made them... You know, there's a lot of buildup to that day. Mm -hmm. Not much has been written about this Mm -hmm. conflict, and what has been written was done in the early 20th century, and it's just not really accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, you know, pretty much someone looked at the newspapers from that week and then wrote about it based on what they saw in the paper. But they don't go back and sort of try to figure out how they got to this point which I think is important. Yeah, we actually have a file of just the newspaper articles just about this. Just the day, right. It's just the, the, it was like a Friday at 2 o'clock. Yeah. So it just so happened that their their post office boxes were beside each other Mm -hmm. in the post office. Swope went in to get his mail, Mm -hmm. and Goodloe also entered the post office to get his mail shortly afterwards, and Swope was blocking his way to his box. Okay. And he asked Swope to move out of the way. He said, you, you know, you're blocking my way. I need to get to my mail. Mm-hmm. And Swope said he didn't care if he was blocking his way. And that's all it took. Yeah. And then, it, to me, it sounds like Goodloe pulled the knife first. Mm-hmm. Like, he was the aggressor. Yeah. Because the backstory is there are several potential instances where the same thing could have happened. Yeah. Even a year prior to this, they had a huge falling out in the mm-hmm. lobby of the Phoenix Hotel and, and this ev- was documented? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. And everybody thought that they would they would stage some kind of duel then, but mm-hmm. their friends interceded and were able to calm things down. Okay. And they agreed to never they both apologized and they both agreed to never speak to each other again. And you can go back further from that. There are other flashpoints okay. where they almost came to blows. And it was on this afternoon in November where that groundwork had already been laid, but that was the spark, mm-hmm. the final, you know, Goodlow uh, said, you know, this is the third time you've insulted me. Mm-hmm. And that's when he pulled his knife out. Like he couldn't, to live in a culture of honor, mm-hmm. like he and Swope both did, to feel like you were insulted and your family name is mm-hmm. insulted was intolerable. Yeah. Right. He, there, he felt, they probably both felt trapped at that point. If either one of them had backed down, they would have been seen as a coward and their political careers would have been destroyed, unfortunately. So he pulled out a knife and Swope just happened to be carrying a gun. He was actually worried that this Democratic politician was going to come to blows with him. They had had a newspaper feud in the weeks leading up to this. So that's why he was carrying a gun for protection against this Democrat who he was in conflict with. And I've read all the eyewitness accounts and all the newspaper accounts, and it's all kind of blurry. Mm-hmm. Everybody sees something a little bit different in terms of who did what first. Okay. But I think Goodloe pulled his knife first and Swope pulled his gun. And then what happened? I, you know, mm-hmm. we do know that Swope fired two shots. One of them hit Goodloe. One of them hit a mailbox. Mm-hmm. And then Goodloe stabbed Swope 13 times and wow. killed him. He died almost instantly. And Goodloe lived for a couple of days and then died from a wound that today would have been superficial. N- well, it was, yeah. the, you know, there's no knowledge at the time of mm-hmm. germs or bacteria. So yeah. it, he died from the infection, not the wound itself. Wow. Could have been, I mean, today it would have been something, he would have been in and out of the ER probably in yeah. a night or whatever. Yeah. It seemed like the actual fight 
took a while from the stabbing and between the gunshot. And it's amazing to me that he was able to stab 13, 13 times. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. While he had been gunshot. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing. I guess adrenaline does that. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. It sounds, I mean, it sounds utterly terrifying. Yeah. Um, Some of the stuff that I read is, seems to be very, very detailed. But like you said, it's very murky depending on who they spoke to. Right. The post office uh, worker or the, the lady that was in the in the post office. That's right. Yeah. There were several witnesses and there was an inquest. Mm-hmm. The inquest was published in the paper. I still need to go look at the actual inquest itself, yeah. which will be in Frankfurt at the Kentucky Department of Library and Archives. The, yeah. So I've been there a few times already. I need to go back and look at the actual inquest because mm-hmm. it was printed in the paper, but you never know. You never know. Yeah. Sometimes the they leave a lot out. Yes. So I'll go and look at that and see if there's anything there. But, you know, I'm interested in what happened in the actual fight itself. But mm-hmm. to me, that's not as interesting as the lead up to the fight. That's, what, yeah, that's what, what's... Yeah. What, what pushes them to the brink that they're willing to, to do this? That's the big question. (laughs) Why would somebody feel compelled? I know that at the time, honor and, you know, saving face was a big deal. It was. Wow, to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know anything about their families, their legacies, what what they left behind? Yeah, he left seven children. Goodloe left seven children and a wife. Swope was a lifelong bachelor. Oh, he okay. lived at the Phoenix Hotel the whole time he was here. So like 12 years, he he rented rooms in the Phoenix Hotel, <laughs> and he was a bachelor, which at the time, being a bachelor was seen as a little, it would have been considered suspicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the, like, why is he a bachelor? You yeah. know, the, the whole ba- notion of this guy in his 40s being a bachelor when he's this really prominent, powerful mm-hmm. politician. Yeah. Um, I think struck people as being strange. Uh, do you know what happened to those children? Or did they stay in Lexington? Or I know that three of the daughters stayed in Lexington because if you go to Gratz Park, mm-hmm. there are th- the three sisters. Do you know there are three houses there that are? You've, if you've been to Gratz Park, you've yeah. probably walked by them. There are three houses there that look really similar, but the facade is slightly different. Goodloe's wife purchased those three houses for his three for daughters. spinster daughters. Oh. They never got married, and so they each lived in one of those houses in Gratz Park. Mm-hmm. And so they're called the Three Sisters, but I've also seen them called the Three Ugly Sisters, which is quite cruel. <laughs> that is cruel. Yeah. Goodness. His wife continued to live at Loudon up mm-hmm. until 1920, which she died in the early 20th century, like mm-hmm. I want to say 1919, 1920. Okay. And that's when she sold Loudon. Yeah. And it eventually passed to the into the city's hands. What sparked your interest in this particular story? I mean, you're it's, an editor of other academic works. And, so. Right. I was actually working on another project, and I was looking at the New York Times, and it just I just so happened to be looking at this run of November 1889 New York Times, mm-hmm. and I was living in Lexington at the time, and I came across a headline, you know, this really um, sensationalist headline in the New York Times, front page stab to death colonel kills colonel lexington kentucky and i read the story and i was like what is what is this yeah. and i assumed that it had been written about because it was it was a national event which it's i didn't know deal, at the time yeah. it was a huge deal in in the time that it occurred mm-hmm. and today it's been largely forgotten i mean truly i mean yeah. almost completely erased 
Yeah. Um, I mean, unless you're really interested in Lexington history, most right. people haven't heard of this huge blowout that happened at right. the post office. Yeah. Or if they know about it, they just know that these two guys killed each other. Yeah, um, nobody knows why. Right, and so it was called the Lexington Tragedy. Yeah. And I, I followed the story in the New York Times for the next few days, the next few issues, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like falling down a rabbit hole mm-hmm. because as soon as I started looking, I was like, well, I wonder what why they did that. That's so strange. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and I just stumbled into it and mm-hmm. um, became interested and kind of couldn't stop. And that was yeah. a few years ago. That's kind of what happens when you look at a microfilm. Over there. Right. You just kind of get started and you right. just can't stop. Yeah. Right. My problem with looking at microfilm is that I know what I'm looking for, but mm-hmm. there's so much else that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wait, what is that? It's no, like, wait, stop, stop, like go back. <laughs> right. Yeah, pretty much. So I've, you know, I've been to the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. There are neither... Swope or Goodloe left papers behind. Okay. Goodloe, there was a book about his great uncle's experience in Russia mm-hmm. published in the 1930s, and there are references, there are annotations that list Goodloe's papers belonging to a relative in Lexington in the 1930s, but they were never deposited in, in an archive. I see. And I've done only a little bit of research trying to figure out who might have his papers. Mm-hmm. They could be out there somewhere. One of his sons became a pretty famous politician, and another one ended up on the West Coast somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to dig a little bit more, but, you know, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. It's hard to know yes. if those papers, Still exist, what so happened yeah. to them. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons that no one has really looked at this story is because neither guy left behind really anything at mm-hmm. all. But they did write letters to significant politicians from Kentucky who had national office Mm -hmm. and from Ohio as well. So I looked at John Sherman's papers, John Harlan's papers, and Benjamin Bristow's papers in the Library of Congress, and I found a ton of letters from Goodloe and from Swope to these guys, Mm -hmm. and then copies of letters that they wrote back. Yeah. So this is in their quest for seeking some sort of federal position. Right, or just talking about politics in general general in Kentucky. So that's a really fascinating window onto their thinking in the period. Mm -hmm. The letters, unfortunately, don't carry much into the 1880s, but it gives me some insight into their background. Newspapers are a great source, and... Lexington fortunately had, I should say, fortunately for me and also unfortunately for me, there is a miles of microfilm newspaper for this period in Lexington because there were three and four papers operating simultaneously and they're publishing yeah. every day. So, yeah. I mean, I, at the time, like if you don't like what one newspaper is publishing, they start their own. Right. Much. <laughs> right. And so I'm making my way through those and I've done some work at the Kentucky Department of Library and Archives, mm-hmm. at the UK Special Collections. So it's keeping you busy. Yeah, yeah. It's At some point, I think I just need to stop and start arranging my thoughts and writing. Okay. It's it's easy to just keep going. You could research for it. This is what I tell my authors sometimes when they're, they're telling me about all these sources that they still need to look at and all mm-hmm. these secondary new books have just come out. I need to read that. It's like, yeah. well, this could be open-ended. You could make it your life's work and yeah. never turn anything in. So exactly. you have to decide where you're going to stop. Yeah, because eventually um, you have to put it all in order. Like we previously mentioned, you are the editor-in-chief at LSU Press. Can you talk to us a little bit about what kind of works they've published? Sure. We, we do primarily Southern history, mm-hmm. and I work remotely from Lexington. 
working remotely is becoming more common now, but I've been doing mm-hmm. it for, I guess, six years. When mm-hmm. I first started, it was seen as kind of strange. Yeah. But as an acquisitions editor, I could do my job anywhere. And I'd worked in Baton Rouge at LSU Press for about a decade mm-hmm. before that. I acquire Southern academic Southern history books. I see. And I did my doctorate in Southern history. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really good fit in terms of being an acquisitions editor. Okay. We publish books primarily written by PhD historians mm-hmm. and read by PhD historians. Okay. But we also publish more sort of general interest level books. I was in the Kentucky room last month and you had a display of Boone, Boone books, Daniel Boone books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of those was an LSU press book that I acquired. Oh, wow. The Meredith Mason Brown mm-hmm. Daniel Boone book was, he was a lawyer, mm-hmm. but it's still, the book is written, you know, it's heavily annotated, excellently researched. It's written like an academic book, yeah. but for a general audience. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at some of the profiles. You have a lot of books about women in history and Southern history and, and their contributions that are... It's right. A pretty good collection. A lot of lots of Civil War history. You'd think that Civil War history would eventually stop being of interest and yeah. stop selling, but it just doesn't. I mean, it's There's something about about that period I think is of interest. Right. If not locally, then I think on a national level definitely. Right. So, yeah. Right. Well, thank you so much for oh, talking sh- with us. Sure. We enjoyed it. And thank you for being an awesome Kentucky Room customer. Oh, thanks. I'll be back. I, uh, I, oh, I still yes. have many years of newspapers to go <laughs> we'll through. We'll be glad to see you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm. Or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.